Strategy and Insider, exploring future trends and their impacts. Welcome to the fourth episode of our Strategy and Insider podcast, where we aim to explore some of the most critical future trends and their impacts. In each episode, we discuss the most fundamental questions in the healthcare industry with health experts from different sectors. And my name is Thomas Solbach. I'm a partner at Strategy and, and I'm the host of our first podcast season. In our last episode, I really had the pleasure to discuss how technology will change the way patients, for instance, access medicine in the future, together with Theresa Graham, who is the head of global product strategy at Roche Pharma. And I am still very much impressed by both her insights, but also her open perspectives that she shared, particularly around uh, her perspective on the interplay between the traditional side of healthcare and the tech side entering the healthcare space. And after having welcomed a bioinformatician and a physician, as well as a global pharma executive in our first three episodes, we're now going to cover a new industry perspective. And I'm very honored and thrilled to welcome my guest um, today, who is a serial health entrepreneur with more than 30 years of clinical and academic expertise in the medical device sector. And not only he is a founder and investor, but also a fully educated cardiac surgeon. So welcome, Georg Matthijs. The honor is mine, and I'm, I'm glad to be here. Georg, you hold various board positions in successful companies that offer highly innovative digital healthcare solutions. And one example being that you recently joined the advisory board of a very promising digital therapy solution that treats respiratory diseases, talking about Vision Health, a startup that recently successfully completed a venture funding round that you have actually been leading. And before this and other responsibilities, you have been joining the board of Xenios AG, which is a leader in technologies and therapies for minimally invasive support of both pulmonary and cardiac functions and diseases. So this brings a well-rounded package of experience uh, to our podcast today. So very much looking forward to having discussions around the future of health with you, Georg. So looking at your CV, I see two distinct lives, if I'm honest. Yeah, First being you as a surgeon that you started off your career at and second your life as entrepreneur in the medical field so probably starting with your first life what made you decide becoming a surgeon in the very first place what drove your interest in the human body and doing something to fix uh, certain conditions as a surgeon that is a very tricky question indeed <laughs> because um, life's not been a business plan it is not a business plan yeah so it just happened It wasn't planned that way. It was um, in part socialization, triggered by mentors, by personal experiences over time. And I'd been, you know, looking for a topic for my um, PhD thesis. And there was a handwritten note on the university bulletin board. You know, one of those non-digital bulletin boards, it was a piece of paper <laughs> with a scribbled phone number, not a mobile phone. So I called and um, met this young surgeon had posted the note and uh, we spoke about his scientific work and uh, he was dealing with organ protection how to keep organs alive longer mm -hmm. without blood supply and it was fascinating there was empathy on his behalf there was energy 
and I just love the environment. And I embarked on this journey by, you know, diving deep into cardiac surgery as a student. I've been in the OR, on the ward, talking to patients in the research lab. It was my life. It took away most of my time as a student. I managed to, you know, finish med school with a great exam, though, and with a thesis. But real I life decided, examples, then? Huh? Yes, exactly. <laughs> for, exactly. That's a good term. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And so, uh, without having planned a surgical career, it just happened. It's that easy, actually. Uh, and and that's probably also part of our lives, right? So some things you can yes. plan, and some things you yes. you discover by accident. Yes. Huh? And that topic actually has remained the leitmotif for about 30 years now. It's organ protection, how to keep organs alive, how to make um, organ failure bearable for patients, how to have an unlimited supply for transplantable organs in the end. That's, that's pretty much what's been driving me. Um, so basically what you're saying is there is, and we come to your second life, surely there is a red string throughout your life that started somewhat by accident at the very beginning as a young medical student being intrigued by that, what you just outlined. But still you, you're staying true to that uh, still now in your life and your career um, from a very different angle. But let me probe onto that because... I mean, being a surgeon and being well-trained and uh, well-researched at the time at a well-renowned uh, university clinic here in Frankfurt, where we're meeting actually today again, yeah, what made you switch? Because for most of the people, such a position, such a, uh, a meaning in life would be kind of the apex of their careers. But you changed into doing something very different in terms of, again, becoming a founder and increasingly now also an investor. What made you change there? I owe this to my mentors, and I'm grateful for that because both my basic science mentor, mm -hmm. who comes from Big Pharma, okay, and my surgical and physiological research mentor, who has been patenting his ideas, working with startups to making them new therapies or new diagnostic tools, have taught me unknowingly, aside from the art of cardiac surgery and the art of doing a physiological research in the lab, how to transcend from a medical need into a new therapy. Mm -hmm. And that is something I believe needs to be taught in medical schools. And I'm incredibly grateful when I returned. My first three years were at UCLA after graduating from medical school. Yeah. When I returned to Germany, it was a disaster. It was November was gray like now <laughs> right like now it's november again and gray as well unfortunately glad yeah? you mentioned it um <clears throat> and ultimately a good friend of mine who founded a private equity fund in frankfurt was my local mentor mm -hmm. who taught me what's different in europe as opposed to the u.s who took me along to due diligence um, work etc so um, i was prepared for what happened five years later founding my first own medical device company so wow. I'm grateful yeah. to all those mentors. Yeah, so um, again, something that you probably cannot plan so much for because you personally need to connect to, to these people that, that helped you develop your career very successfully as you did. You touched upon one uh, important point, the difference between the US and Germany um, and environments being probably different, but also secondly, founding startups. Nowadays, even more importantly, to have a good kind of basis, infrastructure, landscape for startups. How do you see that shaping up in Germany? What's the current status? Are we ahead uh, or are we behind the wave of this compared to others? Despite a wealth of technology, we're lagging behind and we're falling behind year by year. Okay. And I think there's um, a number of reasons. I'd like to focus on three of them. 
Okay. One being that there is seed funding and the government has not done a bad job. There is the BAFA Invest Program, for example. There is the Hightech Gründerfonds and other tools that I think are just well done mm -hmm. and very helpful. But after that seed stage, there is a great difficulty to achieve a substantial Series A, eight-digit euro amount funding to really get a meaningful innovation going. Mm -hmm. And that is where some uh, founders already give up mm -hmm. and where I think the largest gap on the funding side is. And there's also a cultural uh, problem in that there is a naive belief, and that's not typically German, it's Mittel Europa. Mm -hmm. Whether you go to the Czech Republic or to Northern Italy, it's the same mentality. Terrific engineers, mm -hmm. bright technology people, but the complete, utter lack of understanding that it takes more money to establish a new therapy with clinical data, mm -hmm. reimbursement, coding, um, regulatory approval, just to mention a few, yeah. and not even mentioning clinical marketing. Yeah. That is the problem why there is no awareness for the funding needs of innovative, not just medical device, but healthcare companies in general. And that, I think, personally, there is a big difference between health-related developments and startups versus in other places where we don't have that strict regulation when it comes to proving medical efficacy, effectiveness, safety, and actually benefits for the patient. And then translating that into pricing and reimbursement evidence that someone like a payer or someone like a regulator would buy into and believe into. There is a big difference to others. Uh, yes. And um, thanks very much for laying out that. And let me probe one, one aspect on the cultural element, because I sometimes have the impression if you fail in the US, uh, you fail for good and you learned a lot. Yeah? And the more you fail, the more you learn, the more you prepared for the next big step, where, where then it will eventually work out. If you fail here in the Western European German world, is there any difference? And uh, how did you experience that? Because I can imagine as you successfully funded some companies, you must have been making mistakes yourself in younger years, I can imagine. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Oh, a little? We all have our long lists of mistakes that we learned from. And um, in my first startup, I made such a mistake in that the, you know, the founders team wasn't strong enough to uh, bring this forward. And upon recognizing this, I was looking for an early exit. Uh -huh. But that wasn't rewarding enough for my co-founders. So I ended up selling my shares three years down the road mm -hmm. with a lot of pain and actually joined a spin-off of a buyer, of a potential buyer for that startup. Okay, which was a good decision, yeah. but lesson learned, never go for second class, always go with top people on the team, and also seek failure early, be the devil's advocate for your own business plan day by day, and love the investors who don't fund you, as long as they give you good feedback on where your gaps and shortcomings are. So stay open to feedback that you can build up on and learn from yeah, and, mm -hmm. and honor that openness uh, if someone yes. gives that to you and appreciate it. Yeah. Great. And don't let your excitement take you away from reality. Yeah, And don't love your solution then too much that you don't accept any feedback from others mm -hmm. that have a more objective perspective on it. Exactly. Yeah. 
So Georg, since you have been an innovator and, and founder and medic since 30 plus years now, yeah, you did innovate in the past and you're still innovating now. If you compare the past and the now, what's now possible that wasn't possible, let's say, 10 years ago? What changed there? That question takes us to a fascinating age because looking at the 19, early 1990s up until today, we saw a tremendous decline in invasiveness of many therapies. Mm -hmm. Let me give you two examples okay. from cardiac medicine. In the 1990s, it was um, most prevalent, or let's say the 80s and 90s, it was most prevalent to treat advanced coronary artery, three-vessel disease with bypass grafts. You would take a vein from the patient's leg mm -hmm. or another blood vessel from the patient's chest and use it as a bypass to bring blood behind a stenosis, a narrowing of a coronary blood vessel. That is major surgery with a heart-lung machine and with its own set of complications. And its mm -hmm. long-term benefits are, of course, unrivaled. But then suddenly there was a balloon that was inserted with a catheter without surgery. And then this balloon would expand a stent, which is a wire cage in the vessel to dilate it and open it up again. Yeah. And suddenly, clinicians confronted patients with a very provocative questions. And I quote a colleague of mine who said, do you want to be split like a chicken and be operated on on a heart-lung machine? Or do you want to have a catheter in your vessel that opens it up and gives blood flow back? And tomorrow you can have dinner with your wife by the beach. Wow. I know it's very provocative, but this is the megatrend from surgery to catheter intervention that has first changed the treatment of coronary artery disease. And then in a second wave in this century, we've seen the change in the treatment of valve disease, where traditionally a valve is being replaced with the heart-lung machine and a long recovery period. And today, in a large subset of patients, a catheter with a folded valve can be advanced into the patient's heart and unfolded there and pressing the old damaged valve to the wall and unfolding a new valve. And that is an interventional procedure that doesn't take a long hospital stay and doesn't take the clinician to open the chest or anything like that. So the megatrend is from surgery to intervention and that has also trickled down to other areas. Look at neurology. In neurology, stroke was um, a fatal thing. Yeah, It was treated with rehab. And yeah, then much, yeah. it became a medical emergency. And you saw all those campaigns that were wonderful. Stroke units were designed and the time window of one hour from event to treatment was increasingly considered. And suddenly we see that The um, treatment of stroke has gone over two, three decades from contemplation to intervention. And that's fantastic. And I think we're going beyond this because it will have structural impact. The structural impact on healthcare is that if we go from surgery to intervention and from hospital stay to outpatient treatments, we are going to need fewer hospital beds and fewer hospitals. And sure. our access to those fewer hospitals that, by being larger and centralized, will provide better quality. I mean, that's not up for discussion. I don't yeah. want to discuss this anymore. That's solid data. 
And every small town politician wants their hospital back, wants to hold on to their hospital. And they're not aware how much damage to quality of care they're doing to their population. I know this is very edgy, but it's, um, it's a statement based on data. And I think we will see that trend going further with a more ambulatory and less invasive medicine. Now, probably switching into, um, and this is where we had also prior to today, a lot of discussion around the future of healthcare and where we're heading as a society. And you know the study that we have been writing up on, that we believe that the future of healthcare will be very much people-driven, where we are the center around the both health and the lifestyle data that, that we are accommodating and, and accumulating around. Second, it, it will be preventative, uh, in addition to to caring and curing at some place. It will be personalized, as we experienced that already today in care and, and medications, but even more so in prevention. It will and must be digitally enabled because, I mean, we're both medics, right? We can't keep up with all the knowledge that is mm -hmm. uh, incorporated and developed. There needs to be a digital mean and a digital support of doctors making proper decisions, incorporating all the, the knowledge that is out there. And lastly, it will be integrated into our lives very much more as in the past. And with that said, what is your vision of that health? Do you see those trends? Uh, do you think they will become a reality? What's your general perception of it? Yeah. First of all, thanks for introducing the environment we're in now and the environment that shapes our current and future healthcare environment. Uh, let me go back into history for a second. Mm -hmm. um, up until the 19th century, there wasn't much a physician could do to influence the course of the patient's disease. Mm -hmm. With a lot of empathy, physicians accompanied patients until death. And they accompanied them with a age-old, millennia-old ways of dealing between patients and physicians that come back from the Eastern Mediterranean and have become somewhat um, neglected or even lost in the course of the first successes we can now uh, mitigate or even cure some diseases. Mm -hmm. So we've become, as a medical in society, more powerful mm -hmm. in treating disease. We're not anywhere near. We're still in the Middle Ages when it comes to certain disease states. But we've advanced But we've lost the empathy, the patient-physician relationship. The time Not, with the patient. The basically. time with the patient, exactly. Yeah. And that can be regained. And I think that is one of the greatest opportunities in digital health and AI. We can regain, reclaim, or basically enable a renaissance of the patient-physician relationship that has largely been hijacked by paramedicine in some countries by freeing time that now is... Uh, a terrible administrative burden on caregivers and healthcare towards the physician-patient relationship. And if we do that and have the screening and diagnostic process assisted by AI, I think we can move not just on the technical or therapeutic side, we can also advance culturally and on the human side in healthcare. Now, that's very interesting, that, that regaining of 
proper dialogues between a patient and a doctor will be very important and, and does have a lot of impact on a patient's life yeah? who heard probably uh, about one of the most devastating messages or diseases they can or she can ever hear about. So that is really interesting, that uh, element around regaining time for your conversation between the doctor and the patient and the doctor rather becoming kind of a health coach to the patient, him or herself. However, given this is more a topic, uh, and again, in our more Western world, where we do have sufficient enough doctors uh, to treat patients, there is other places in our world where you don't have those physicians in large numbers. How do you see it there? What's your perspective in the more developing and low to middle income markets of the world? I'm glad you raised the issue of developing countries in the upcoming digital healthcare market because we're living in luxury and we're discussing topics such as patient-physician relationship with time to talk, with physician's empathy, undergoing a renaissance. That's wonderful, and I'm not criticizing it. But on the other hand, digital healthcare and just using smartphones or Apple Watches or whatever devices you need to provide the very basic healthcare to those people to those billions who do not have access to a physician within, say, 100 kilometers or 200 kilometers of outreach. That is tremendous in that there is potential with very little investment to reach many patients and to get at least a very basic level of health care to them. And there's a few people who are embarking on this journey, and I think investing in this part of digital health is fantastic. And perhaps we will have repercussions on our luxurious Western world healthcare system in learning from these approaches. Yeah. Me personally, I think this is where we also will see the leapfrog happen in terms of how we innovate going forward because they don't have a system to take along. They just don't have a system to cope with yeah? and they need to find solutions for their patients in very need and suffering from malaria or other infectious diseases. So... Thanks a lot for sharing that side of healthcare as well. That is uh, as important as what we have discussed beforehand. And towards that digitally enabled world where you have a physician being supported um, by readouts and analysis of big data, we have also seen in the study that most of the people do believe this will be triggered and fostered by big tech companies and smaller tech companies. Is that something that you would also see that they are basically taking somewhat of a dominating catalyst role in future to make that happen? Uh, or do you have a very different perspective on that? No, I share that. I share that full heartedly. And I just don't know as to how much the alphabets and apples will own a large part of healthcare mm -hmm. and how much traditional healthcare players will uh, digitalize themselves to an extent that they can survive and thrive in the digital healthcare sector. And not knowing where exactly this is going to end up, I think there is great opportunity for the, and I think we talked about that briefly before, for some traditional players who have achieved something that I believe will be precious for the decades to come. They've achieved vertical integration. They yeah. offer product, devices, drugs, the service by employing doctors, nurses, etc., by owning the hospitals or the outpatient clinics. So they own the therapy. 
Yeah. And these entities have, even without having a perfect digital record of all they do, but still looking at the overall amount of data they've amassed, they have the power to improve healthcare in their sector and dramatically advance. And I think it's time to look at such vertical integrated companies a little more closely. So another recent news that was announced by Amazon is that they are further expanding its activities in the healthcare sector yeah, by uh, taking over the startup called Health Navigator. And they actually are becoming part of the recently launched subsidiary of Amazon called Amazon Care for their employees. And this actually offers uh, for the employees uh, novel telemedicine solutions, online chats with nurses, delivery uh, systems for medication and, and even app-enabled, as they call it, house calls uh, or even to an employee's office or home. Uh, bottom line, this innovation is showcasing that they are virtually disintermediating and crossing over industry boundaries. And also Teresa from Roche from last time, she was actually saying at that intersection of the tech industry and the traditional pharma and medtech industry, this is where the magic will happen at that intersection who brings that together. What's your perspective on that? Do you believe into that, that this is where the magic will happen? And who do you think needs to come together for such a fruitful cooperation here? I completely share the statement that Teresa made. I think it's a very promising approach to look at this intersection. And this intersection is also something I've experienced in one of my startups. The intersection and the integration between, say, players who are coming from digital, who have you know, taken a new infrastructural and procedural look at how healthcare works, such as Amazon, a very commendable project, by the way, together with drug makers, medical device companies, biotech companies, and researchers, once they cross boundaries, once they collaborate, we will see new types of companies that are not limited to providing services, to running hospitals, to making drugs, devices, or biotech solutions. I think we can move towards integrated companies that, for example, care for a certain organ block, like the heart and the lung. Mm -hmm. For example, look at the logo of United Therapeutics. It's the heart and the lung as an organ block and the interaction between those organs. They have an organ focus. And having an organ focus rather than being a drug maker, a device maker, will address the issues we're also having on the regulatory side. I was completely frustrated when the regulators told us, that was more than a decade ago, that a drug slash biotech coding on a device would fall into the abyss. There is no regulation for that. And one notified body said this, the other said that, and they were all disagreeing. And in the end, it was difficult. And ultimately, there was no investment made, no further investment in this anti-biofilm coding. So the regulators stopped this integration. Yeah. At these crossroads, where sectors and the old um, and the new industries meet, that is where innovation happens. And regulators, I think, should... And I hope they will be intelligent enough to do that should open borders for cross-sector collaboration, for more integrated looks at healthcare. I think that's where the benefit will be.
So let me probe a little more because you're also one of those startups, tech entrepreneurs, as we reference them, being a catalyst towards that new future that bears a lot of benefits to society and people. One of your companies actually uses artificial intelligence in the area of respiratory diseases yeah, and to make their lives better yeah, and improve the effectiveness of inhalation therapies. Can you explain a little more what you're doing there, what the big promise is behind that, your big belief, why you are so active in this, but also where you see the hurdles to come? Mm -hmm. um, admittedly, this is the startup you mentioned, Vision Health, has been uh, my first digital health um, engagement, and I was thrilled to meet the founders and learn about the gaps in inhalation therapy that I heard about theoretically mm -hmm. in that in a, say, regulatory approval trial, there is great attention to teaching patients how to inhale properly mm -hmm. and to get the drug into their lungs mm -hmm. to the right spot where it's supposed to act. However, in day-to-day -day practice, this is not done to the extent that we know from the approval trials. Mm -hmm. So part of the dose does not arrive where it's supposed to arrive, which results in more hospitalizations, mm -hmm. potentially reduced quality of life. And that's a major issue because Europe and US alone, there's about 200 million asthma patients alone who are um, largely treated with drugs and inhalers being a large part of that. So uh, we decided to embark on the journey to have an AI app that teaches and coaches patients to improve their inhalation therapy to get as much of the drug that they inhale to the parts of the lung where it's supposed to act. So basically, can I imagine then someone is using that inhaler and that inhaler is somehow connected to your to your startup yeah, and they read out the usage of the inhaler of that very patient and compare that to others and gives advice to that very patient on how to use it better and more effectively is it that what i can yes. kind of visualize that that's pretty much um on the spot and it allows also to highlight two ways mm -hmm. these apps could go one way is to completely work without sensors without hardware that is okay on the other hand There's players who combine sensors mm -hmm. that feed data into, say, a smartphone to enhance that loop between a therapy and the digital device that helps improve the therapy. And how do the physicians react to that? Isn't that something that the physicians are willing to kind of co-prescribe to their patients or is there hesitance from doctors? Uh, where do you see that? And probably it's a combination of the two, I guess. Yeah? Let's split this answer and go to the prescription uh, topic as a second answer. Mm -hmm. The first answer is the acceptance both on behalf of physicians, nurses mm -hmm. and patients is positive because they see Great. that it's a uh, simple, easy to use tool to improve their inhalation therapy. Mm -hmm. That is the easy part. The more difficult part, both on the acceptance side and also on the rollout side, because that's very sketchy and there's not much going on. Last week, Bundestag decided on the prescription of therapy apps, for example. Yeah. And that is a novelty that is unusually bold for German healthcare, that on the other hand, 
limits access to data for research purposes, for example. Yeah. That is contradictory, and I haven't made up my mind on this contradiction. And yeah. There are many of those contradictions around. But in any case, I think this is a bold move. And even if some voices say it's too early, uh, the threshold is too low, this may at least start a learning process where we can differentiate between apps that make a contribution to improved quality of life, for example, and others that remain gadgets. But that process is best not in the hands of the regulators, but in the hands of the healthcare community that will ultimately decide what works and what doesn't. So I think it's a good move, and I uh, welcome this. I think there is a lot of positives to fostering the EHR system in Germany and make that something real by 2021, uh, A, and B, also giving inroads for novel applications, as you have been talking about in the field of asthma, for instance, where you are gaining access to, to funding as a statutory health insurer, uh, insured person that um, after showing an initial safety functionality and data privacy and protection that you can get access to that and uh, have that for 12 months yeah? but give that startup that innovates it a 12-month period of time to show benefit to patients. Yeah? I think this is a good step forward in, in order to foster innovation. I'm absolutely with you. Let me probe on the other bit that you're referencing, which is a centralized database uh, where uh, data is, is captured coming from payer claims data um, from, again, statutory health insurances, which is something in the range of 73 million lives in Germany, yeah, and integrates that data in a pseudonymized way yeah, mm -hmm. and gives access to researchers uh, in an anonymized way based upon their request. But it does exclude others than researchers. What is your perspective on that? Because I, I can see that the, the positive here and the negative there uh, that, that you have been referencing. What's your perspective? Yes, that, that question takes us back to the cultural gap between Europe and the U.S. and other parts of the world. In that, um, there is, for example, in the U.S., there's sanctions, there's tough sanctions. So I think $10,000 per individual patient data set that you have to pay as a penalty if you do not comply with data protection. Wow. Um, $10,000 per that's patient data massive. set. Yeah. And uh, that's massive. And in Europe, of course, it's more fear-driven. And uh, ultimately, I think the uh, dark side view of the industry and the bright side view of the public sector, which is traditionally Europe, is uh, in the way of therapy improvement for patients. Of course, there needs to be strong data protection. This is very, very critical. But if we sacrifice the benefits for our longevity, for our quality of life, by ignoring this wealth of data that can help improve healthcare, I think we're making a big mistake. Mm -hmm. And bringing those um, two worlds uh, together, the legislators, industry, and patient advocates, I think, that are not really visible in the system, would be uh, timely. Because uh, the dangers I see is that this is going to happen elsewhere, and it is happening elsewhere, and we're going to be left out and going to be left out like we've been left out in pharmaceutical innovation. It's um, virtually gone from Germany. We've been the world's pharmacy. Why are we not mm. the world's pharmacy anymore? And why are we on the way to, you know, losing our um, strong position in medical devices, its regulation? Yeah, and I very much 
like your comment around the fear-driven approach to it that, that we're having in Europe. Uh, now, uh, hearing the sanction part of the US solution at the one side, but also the other side, hot off the press now beginning of November 19 from Google um, having access uh, via Ascension, which is um, yeah one of the biggest uh, non-for-profit health systems in the US, having access to EHR data and uh, running artificial intelligence and machine learning aspects on, on these data sets. I mean, they do have already now, through that project that they call Nightingale, they have access to millions of lives in the US, um, across more than 20 states in the US. So it's massive data. They are fostering through that innovation. At the same time, people are obviously and probably also rightly questioning the data privacy of it. But at the same time, they give sanctions out for each data set that is going to leak, yeah, which is massive, uh, listening to the 10,000k each. Yeah. So uh, that's basically, uh, on the one hand, fostering innovation and, and pushing. Um, on the other hand, sanctioning uh, someone who's not mm -hmm. using it properly. Yeah. Where do you see that? Um, because Would you be of the belief that we need to give also access to researching companies to that data sets in addition to researchers, academic researchers, given that they have tons of experience in scaling uh, these type of innovations and bringing that into real life of clinicians using it rather than having a research project done on a certain aspect? Where do you see that? And what's the need there? There is a great need and there's great potential. But I, I would suggest that if industry gains access to this kind of massive databases, that it uh, should be done in collaboration with at least some academic researchers mm -hmm. that um, also have a certain watchdog function in the project. But generally speaking, I think the accessibility should be there. And I also believe that once such projects have yielded results that benefit certain patient groups with certain diseases, we're going to see more positive attitudes in the population for this type of projects. Right now, it's, it's not really visible for the general population what benefits can be achieved with this type of big healthcare data. So thanks, Georg, up until here. Um, I think we had a thrilling, very insightful discussion already. Let's try to sum it up, what the major points were for both you and myself during today's discussion, and do that really in a dialogue. So first, what, what has been your key takeaway for today and going forward? My key takeaway for today and also for my last couple of years as an apprentice in digital health is that... We are approaching an age with fundamental changes in the healthcare system, in the healthcare structure, driven by the digital world. And we're seeing initial attempts to liberate that digital healthcare animal, like the uh, German legislation that passed Bundestag last week, that allows therapy apps to be prescribed by physicians. And that is um, just opening doors, and I think opening doors on the borders between the various uh, healthcare sectors, between drugs, devices, apps, digital data, and that is where the music will be. Uh, so I'm very supportive of that legislation, and I think without you know expecting anything, we should just watch, analyze, and then readjust over time. But I think this is the way to go ahead with digital healthcare. 
to open doors to learning and advancing this new sector. Now, it's certainly absolutely promising that we're seeing these markets open up and the willingness to foster innovation and refund innovation, um, as we have seen that now beginning of November 2019 in Germany. So to me, on that point of what are the key takeaways for me personally, one uh, very pragmatically and simplistically, uh, learning from you as a serial entrepreneur, Uh, bottom line, you cannot plan everything and you need to remain open to change and career changes and innovation uh, to happen. Second is that the biggest belief or the biggest opportunity uh, emerging from digital health is also to be seen in basically gaining time between a physician and a patient and um, being a health coach and a life coach to a patient again because you are gaining time through not being bogged down by too many of your codings and documentation and integration of various data sets in the first place. And uh, lastly, I think uh, this intersection play that we earlier referenced with a convergence of interest will be a big lever to make that digital and data-driven future of health a reality. So with that said, um, Georg, again, thanks a lot for your time. It was really thrilling to have you here and, and I very much honor the time that we had. For more information, everyone listening here to uh, us during the podcast, please do visit our strategy and website and do download our latest thinking, Future of Health study. And you also have access to the latest podcast that we did produce beforehand. So stay tuned and bear with us. Thank you. Strategy and strategy made real.